When you are on the phone, Karen, maybe talking with a salesperson, there's something you say that is very much you. Do you know what it is I'm talking about? What are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about a question you ask. Well, I always try and establish a connection, so I'll say, well, tell me your name. That's it. Is that That's the, it. what you're saying? That's Not it. just with people on the phone, I do that. With salespeople across the counter or whoever I run into where... It's not a ridiculous question, but, you know, just a a momentary sort of a pause. Tell me your name. Tell me your name. Welcome to the Before We Go podcast featuring Dr. David Maines and his wife, noted author, Karen Maines. Here's David and Karen Maines. I don't think most people ask strangers their names. Why do you do it? Well, you know, every stranger has the possibility of becoming a friend. (laughs) I think that people go through days often in their work environment, certain kinds of work environments, and they never hear anyone speak their name. When I ask that question, I do it because I think it indicates that I'm interested in them. And, you know, with this uh, coronavirus that's been going around, people are cranky. So I've just really attempted to be in casual encounters, warm and friendly and grateful, thank people. And I will will ask that question, tell me your name. Mm-hmm. Can you tell any difference after you ask the question they respond, they give your name? Yeah, they respond right away. It's not always overtly identifiable, but you get a feeling of them leaning in, let's say, or smiling or little indicators like that. Tell me it's worth asking that question. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's you very much. During November, we decided to take a break from the election and all the following news stories and resort to storytelling. And I have been reading stories related to the king, who is a Christ finger, in our Kingdom Tale series of books. This tale is called The Orphan Exodus, and I think we may need to give a little background Mm -hmm. to this. What is The Orphan Exodus about? This is an allegorical writing in some aspects, and so you have the kingdom of darkness represented by the enchanter and his, what I call, minions in the book, people who serve him, and the king, this beautiful center of light and love who's introduced into the stories. There are three books, and of course, the king is a Christ figure, so that's basically the message of it. And then what happens to those who live in the darkness, those who choose to step into the light, into following the king and being a part of his kingdom? That's really what the stories are all about. And there's a key figure in this story that has been kind of unfolding as the tales go along, and that's Big Operator. Yeah, I like him. He's head of the taxi resistance. Now, you know, in big cities in the past, and things are changing now, you would get a taxi. And so he has organized the taxi drivers to be resistance movement and they're there to help they're there to show up when transportation is needed in desperate circumstances not just ordinary circumstances and they whisk the people who are in danger away from that danger if the king is a christ figure is big operator uh... yeah he's john the baptist okay And taxi drivers are all of us who sort of compared to, I mean, there are all kinds of roles in this kingdom for all kinds of different people working in different ways. But, you know, they're great. They are just absolutely great. Okay, let's listen to the story. And again, we'll pull back this thought that we began with about the importance of knowing people's names. Mm -hmm. The Dagoda, a place of brooding towers and iron gates, of council chambers to devise unjust deeds, and of courtrooms to sentence the innocent, 
of fire priest cells in the secret service garrison, of prison and torture chambers, of the orphan pavilion where frightened orphans are drilled under the cruel hand of the orphan keeper, from this evil center the enchanter casts his dark spells. The king and big operator approached the dagoda. Burners guarded all entrances, their pokers glowing luridly in the dark, while squads of breakers boot-stomped in and out, cudgels held attack ready. Both men knew it was a dangerous night. The king whispered, The enchanter is readying his forces for assault. Our time is short. Big operator nodded. They must do what they had come to do quickly, lest their bold plan be aborted. For days the drivers and dispatchers had watched the king and the chief huddled together behind the glassed-in office of the city taxi company. Another rescue strategy was in the making. All sensed the bond of love between the two as they concentrated on unfolded maps on the desk, but none knew the plan they were devising was so desperate it could well be big operators last. Shortly, vanguard orders for an orphan exodus appeared at the dispatcher control panel. The next night, the fleet of swift taxis crept with dimmed headlights through the streets, disconnected from the power source, and took to back alleys. They were to surround the enchanters to go to await the signal and then whisk as many escapees from the orphan pavilion as possible to the edge of the garbage dump where the king himself would accompany the children to Great Park. The orphan pavilion was to one side of the Dakota, enclosed by a high wall with the surrounding courtyard. A sign beside the tall gate proclaimed, We love children, Orphan Keepers Association. But everyone in Enchanted City knew that children were loved only because they provided forced labor to do the dirty work of the enchanter. Two huge wolves the size of lions guarded either side of the entrance. They growled as the men approached. The creatures bared their teeth and drooled. A soft light gathered around the king. The wolves stared, whimpered, and then hid their heads in their paws while the two men passed them by. All closed places opened to the king when he so willed it. Inside, a squad of orphans wearing tattered rags scrubbed the courtyard. A keeper's assistant, with a whistle around her neck, chanted, Clean! 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 and stood ready to beat the slow workers with a long stick. Another work detail, a long line of children tied together at the ankles with rough sections of rope, were getting ready to collect the city garbage which citizens tossed on the street. A whistle blew, Wheat! Wheat! And the crew marched to the waiting carts while another assistant prodded them with the sharp tines of her forked shovel. Huge vats of water boiled while children stirred the dirty clothes within. The hot water splashed on the orphans' rags, burning them one moment and then soaking them to the skin in the cold night. An assistant prodded them with a long wooden turning spoon. Wheat! She blew her whistle and shouted, "'Scoundrels! Dimwits, I'll boil you if you spill any more water! Wheat!' All the orphans, boys and girls, wore the same haircut, making it nearly impossible to tell one from the other. 
The clothes were an identical gray, which grew increasingly threadbare during washings as they were passed down from one child to another. Skinny, sad-eyed, covered with sores from the lack of proper foods, not one orphan smiled or laughed or told jokes or chased another in games of tag. Games were forbidden and play had been outlawed. No one belonged to any other. Brothers and sisters were separated. There were no holidays and never any birthday cakes. Lanterns cast a dim light in the dark courtyard. Big operator and the king could see another work detail, carrying brooms, prepared to march out to sweep the streets. The workers were all barefoot, and the night was cold. Hey! shouted the assistant keeper and bleated on her whistle. Wheat! 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 As one, the troops centered the broom handles on their shoulders. I told you to keep the line, yelled the guard again, and she stumped on the foot of a little child who had stumbled. Gotcha, shouted the keeper cruelly as the child dropped the broom and grasped the poor foot, but uttered not a sound. The penalty for sobbing was a hot poker prod. Big operators seethed with enormous rage. It was against this abuse that he had given his life, against this outrage that he had masterminded the resistance, against these indignities that he had worked for the restoration. He wanted to yell and shout. He wanted to take that guard and shake her by her shoulders. The king restrained him with his hand. Then a young voice demanded, "'What are you doing here? No outsiders allowed on the premises.' It was an older child dressed in faded blue, an orphan who had come up through orphan ranks and was now dressed in the uniform of an assistant in training. He was still barefoot. Only full-fledged assistants were issued footwear. Their food rations were also increased from one meal a day to two, and they were given whistles. For some, that was reason enough to mistreat one's fellow orphan. "'Hello, Jason,' said the king." We've come to speak to the orphan keeper. At the sound of his name, the boy's eyes widened. Orphans were addressed only by number and rank. The last person who had spoken his name had been his mother years ago. So long ago, he could scarcely remember her face or the sound of her voice. The boy cocked his head as though listening to something far away, something almost forgotten. He moved closer. "'Who are you?' he whispered, his voice very low. The king answered in the same way, gently, careful not to frighten the orphan. "'I am the king.' Huh. "'How did you know my name?' "'I know all the names of the ones who belong to me.' Suddenly a siren horn blared, whistles blew, wheat, wheat, and all the orphans closed ranks, hop to, hop to, hop to, and stood at attention. The assistant keepers saluted in front of their squads. All was quiet in the courtyard except for the sound of orphans snuffling runny noses and the stamp, stamp, stamp of frozen feet on cold, hard stones and the wailing of the night wind out of enchanted city. She comes, whispered the child. She comes each night for inspection. The expression in his eyes looked as though a brief glimpse into the world once loved and longed for had been shattered. In terror, the boy ran to find his place. 
At that moment, a woman appeared at the inside entrance to the orphan pavilion. She was tall and beautiful and wore glamorous clothes, purple fitted pants with matching purple boots and a flowing red robe which she swept from one side to another behind her. She cracked a cat of nine tails in her hand. A golden headdress embossed with flames crowned her brilliant black hair. She wore bracelets and rings and ear loops and one glittering necklace draped over another and another. Drums rolled the announcement of her appearing. Beside her stood two burners with glowing pokers. Keeper assistants bowed in the ranks, their whistles clattering on the paving stones. Torchbearers lit her path. With each step, the orphan keeper's jewels glimmered and glistened in the reflected torchlight. Her severe beauty was chiseled by the hard edge of hatred. Her eyes flashed with sinister power over the orphans who had been entrusted to her keeping. There was nothing soft in all her body or in all her soul. I am the orphan keeper, she intoned. You will do my bidding. You will keep my commands. I have control over your lives and your destinies. I am the one who says nay and yea. You can never escape. You can never go where I say no. The children cowered, even the older ones. All knew this loveless woman had power to send them to the underworld, to poison their food and call it night ailment, to advance them or to cut off their rations. It was she who ordered punishment for all if one orphan misbehaved. You are mine. You are all mine, she shouted again, lashing the air with a hand whip. Let my children go. Everyone within the courtyard froze. The drum stopped in mid-roll. Ta-ta-ta! Who dared disrupt the orphan keeper's time schedule? Who dared interrupt her early night work duty harangue? The children shivered in the cold, miserable with hunger and now with dread. What torture would they suffer because of this unspeakable challenge? The king had shouted the words. He faced the orphan keeper, throwing back the hood of his common garment from his head as though she would recognize him once his face was fully revealed in the torchlight. The children were stunned by such defiance. Who was this man? The king's hair glimmered with gold highlights and his loosened street robe fell to the paving stones and he stood strong and tall and broad-shouldered and handsome. Big operator's jaw dropped he had never beheld his king undisguised, so young and so beautiful. The orphan keeper cracked her cat of nine tails in the air. I know you, you troublemaker, you instigator. Who do you think you are challenging my power? The enchanter has cast his spell over these children. They are mine. I can do what I please with them. The king answered her not a word, but all could see he was as angry as she. He crossed the pavement and lifted his hands. 
a wind began to blow around and around. Hoo-hoo-hoo, hoo-hoo-hoo. It caught the torches of the torch bears and bound the flames in one windy firebrand. Hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo-hoo. Up, up it shot into the night sky over the orphan pavilion, blazing. By its light all could see the king grab the hand whip from the orphan keeper's grasp. Lash the pokers from the burner's hands, scatter the assistants with a crack, and then toss the instruments of torture to the sky. A bolt of lightning flashed from nowhere, striking with a crack. Flames burst, and a ball of fire fell to the ground, finally to be extinguished at the orphan keeper's feet. The ranks of orphans gasped. The assistant keepers hid their prodding spoons, sticks, and shovels behind their backs, dropped them to the ground, or pushed them under carts. Then, in the unlit dark, all could see the warm radiance of the man standing in the middle of the courtyard, daring to defy the evil power of the orphan keeper herself. The king signaled the big operator, and together with a mighty thrust, they overturned the boiling vat of palace laundry. They ripped the wheels from the work carts, their muscles straining in a fury of indignation, and no one moved to stop them. The burners stood mesmerized. No warning signal was given to the Dakota. The orphan keeper hissed as though the air was escaping from her lungs. Many of the children dropped to their knees, clasping their hands together beneath their chins, scarcely daring to hope. Was this one who could save them? Would their misery finally end? Was freedom close? The king straightened himself again and stared the orphan keeper in the eyes. You mistake yourself, madame, he said. His voice was tight with control wrath. These children are not yours. They belong to me. With those words, he motioned to Big Operator, who stepped forward, wiping axle grease from his hands onto his overalls. He bent his knee and bowed. Though comrade to the king before, he was an obedient subject now. Is the taxi vanguard ready? asked the king. Yes, my lord, ready and waiting. His voice was full of satisfaction. At that, the orphan keeper screamed, staggering on her feet. You, you, you can't take these children. They're waifs. They're slaves. The wolves will tear them to shreds. They do my bidding. They won't come with you. Paying no attention, the king lifted his crossed arms and spread them in a circle above his head. More light diffused from his stretching embrace till it filled every corner of the grim courtyard. The orphans' frozen feet began to warm. Their cold, wet garments began to dry. Their wounds and sores began to heal in the gentle light. Their hearts began to mend. "'What you don't understand, madame,' said the king, is that every orphan answers when his name is called in love. Then the king began to call their names, names unspoken for months, years, names they themselves had all but forgotten. He called them in family groups, brothers and sisters, brothers and brothers, sisters and sisters, according to age and position. He spoke their names with tenderness, 
with kindly affection, with cherished intimacy as though he had been practicing them for years. Kristen, Ned, James, Sarah and Susan, Javier, Carlos, and Maria, Annie, Ted, John and Linda, you and Chen, Sharon and Rob, Jamal and Beza, Jason, Ruth, and Kathy, Malimba, and each child remembered his or her name, and each child stepped from the ranks. They were more than a number, more than flesh from the meat grinder, the enchanter's labor machines. They each had a name chosen in love and a family history and a king who was worthy of service. Big Operator stood now at the street entrance to the pavilion. The beastly wolves lay silent in a stupor of sleep. He put two fingers to his mouth and blew a cabby signal. At this his master strategy went into operation. The first taxi accelerated to curbside. The first ready orphan group climbed into the back and front seats. The driver honked and then hurried off toward the garbage dump as another cab pulled up to take another load, followed by another and another. And inside, the king continued to speak the children's names, and with each naming, the orphan keeper grew grayer, more haggard, leaking hot air. Her hair lost its luster. Her teeth grew black and straggly until all could see her for her true self, a wicked hag who had gorged on the energy and youth and beauty of the children given to her keeping, a faker whose evil power was not her own, a no-people in disguise, as were all who gave themselves to do the will of the enchanter. Finally, she was nothing but a pile of dust covered by filthy red and purple rags, her gold melted, and her jewels turned to dust. And Big Operator was joyful. His heart leaped with gladness. He knew the Enchanter would take revenge, but even if this was to be his final strategic rescue design ever, he had been at the side of his king as together they emptied the pavilion of every last orphan. He closed his eyes and listened to the taxi vanguard, his taxi vanguard, honking throughout all of Enchanted City. Hark, hark, here, there, and everywhere. Hark, hark. It sounded in his ears like a raucous chorus of jubilant rescue. The king stood beside him, ready to leave and to accompany the escapees into Great Park. The hand-clasp between them was firm and long. Their anger was gone, but strangely there was no exaltation, just a quiet sadness. Both knew what dire consequences their defiant acts would set into motion. Farewell, said the king, and they embraced. The embrace of two mighty men, the orphan exodus was accomplished. Big Operator watched the king disappear into the night. 
and though he knew it was just his imagination, it seemed as though a crowd of children stood all over the city, clapping their hands and shouting, Bravo! And when the last taxi had hurried away with the last load, on a whim, big operator bowed to the city, and the applause rose louder in his heart. For big operator had learned through the years of masterminding the taxi resistance that mighty deeds demand mighty risks but that it is worth risking all for the sake of the king and the kingdom. I find reading this story is very hard. Mm-hmm. This one's, I haven't read this one for years. It's very moving, isn't yes, it? Yes, it, yeah, is, it wow. is. When the names start to be called out oh, by yeah. the king. There's an emotional reaction. Yeah. Uh-huh. During my early adult years, and up until the time where this gentleman died, Billy Graham was my hero. Mm-hmm. I always thought if I could meet anyone in the world, I'd like to meet Billy Graham. But that day seemed like it would never and come. And this was in a life that was being lived, meeting many, many famous people, having them on our, uh, having them on the I broadcast. I was fortunate that we were way. Very yeah. fortunate to be able to interact with those folks, yeah. and, and a lot of them became not close friends, but friends. You know, I would not have had the audacity to ask Billy Graham to be on our broadcast. He probably wouldn't have had time either. <laughs> I can't even think about that. Toward the last part, of, I would say it was probably around 1990 in that mm-hmm. area, I went to the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, and lo and behold, I saw Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. And it's not like me, but I kind of walked over toward him. You were in a room filled with a lot of people. Yeah, and yeah. he was standing alone. Oh, okay. And I walked over toward him, and as I got close, he turned, saw me, and he said, Oh, David, which totally wiped me out, but... Almost as soon as he said that, one of the named Other broadcasters <laughs> came running along, grabbed him, and pulled him away. So the only thing Billy Graham ever said to me in my life was, Oh, David. And that meant to me that he knew who I was, and he said that with affection. He was glad to see you. Yeah, which was like a great gift to me. And I have thought in terms of my life, if when I get to glory, I see Jesus and he turns and says, Oh, David. Oh, that's lovely. That would be the most beautiful thing that could possibly happen. He wouldn't even have to say, tell me your name. Uh-huh. He would know my name. And I know that's true. Uh-huh. You know, that that is a part of my great heritage as a follower of Jesus. And of course, that's the point of the story, is that he does. The king does know our names. Mm -hmm. Not only does he know our names, he loves us, and we belong to him. And that's very powerful reality. There is that scripture where it talks about the shepherd knows the name, and he calls each sheep Sheep by by name. name. It's, It's a beautiful thing. If I put it to a sentence, what it is I hear ourselves saying, what more could one want than to serve a good and powerful king who loves you mm-hmm. and knows your name. Mm-hmm. It almost makes me cry. It does. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things people could do with this podcast is to take that reality that you have just mentioned. And most of us who are followers of Christ try to have a devotional time once a day, or time when we set aside when we give ourselves to prayer, or to thinking about who it is we're following, or to listen to the Holy Spirit speak to our lives. So we might, in our mind, use this wonderful gift that God has given us, our mind, which can be given to holy imagination, and say, what would Jesus say to me if I saw him in a crowd and he turned and looked at me? Would he say, oh, Karen, Mm -hmm. or put your name in there? Mm -hmm. 
and then just sit with that reality for a while and see where it goes. Before you actually begin to pray. Before you actually begin to pray. Well, it's a part of the prayer process. Yeah, whatever, you know, however you want to set this up. But I think this is an exercise that could have deep meaning for people. Well, for all of us, but especially thinking of those where they feel kind of nameless. You know, David, when I started writing this story, I think I've mentioned this maybe before in the podcast, but I did research into children's literature and invariably the classics, particularly of the past, but even today, modern classics, always have children who have no parents. They're orphans. Uh, Give me an example. Well, Dickens, David Copperfield. I mean, I could go on. I just didn't become prepared with the list. Mm -hmm. So I think what that says to us is not so much that there's a world filled with orphans, but there are orphans in the world. As much as many of us have an orphan sense that we don't belong, that we're not wanted. That we're inferior, that we don't have the resources. That we're not special. Mm-hmm. That's great. And just this reality, this scriptural reality that he knows our name, that he loves us and turns to us and knows our name and says, oh, Karen, you know, mm-hmm. this is just extraordinary. It's an extraordinary mm-hmm. impact to think that way and, and let it work down deep within us. And then you go to prayer and you basically, with that picture in your mind, you say, thank you for listening to me. Here's what I would like to say to you today. It makes it intimate. Uh, yeah, very warm, intimate. Yeah, not a formality any longer. It's a, you know, relational yes. kind of uh, environment you're functioning in now. What more could one want? What more could one want than to serve a good and powerful king who loves you and knows your name? Mm. He knows who you are. Mm, Beautiful. Carry that truth with you today, friend. The fastest way to get information on where to buy the Tales of the Kingdom Trilogy 30th Anniversary Edition is to go to this website www.kingdomtales.com That's www.kingdomtales.com You've been listening to the Before We Go podcast. And if you would like to write to us, please send us an email at the following address, hosts at beforewego.show That's all lowercase letters, hosts, at beforewego.show. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please remember to rate, review, and share on whatever platform you listen. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Mainstay Ministries, Post Office Box 30, Wheaton, Illinois, 60187.